I'm opening this up now really for the next half hour or so just to, to allow you to feed back questions or comments that you may have had um, and I'll do my utmost to respond to them intelligently. I'm feeling very tired so may not be so intelligent. The intelligence has to come from you. And we'd like to use the mic so we'll pass, pass it around. Okay, right. Who wants to start? Yes, lady here. I found myself thinking about capacity and whether or not, do we have a relationship to capacity? Can we develop it? Uh-huh. Do, you know, is that part of the process of, well, whatever, I don't know. Uh, well, let's, uh, we can think of this, uh, let's just, uh, um, to realize a capacity often requires that we take a risk. Like, we, you know, I've been drawn to many things in my life. Um, and let's say, for example, um, okay, just to give a totally here and now type example, I've always been drawn towards film, movies. Um, I've always wanted, you know, at least a, a fantasy part of myself has always thought, wouldn't it be great to write for cinema? and create a movie. Uh, so this, we all have the capacity, I'm sure, to do that. But it requires, to actually actualize that capacity, requires that on the one hand, you, you affirm the value of what it is that you seek to do. On the other hand, you also have to override all of the resistance you have to doing it. Um, and in, in, you know, in the case of the movies, um, you know, I, I, I've got to a point in my life where I don't have anything else particular to do. Um, I had an idea for a film, so now I'm figuring out how to do it. Writing, I'm writing a screenplay at the moment. Or I'm working towards writing a screenplay. So I have the capacity, perhaps, to write a screenplay. But um, in order to realize that capacity, not only do I have to fir- affirm the value of it, I then have to learn the various skills and tools required. It's not just a question of sort of starting to write. You have to, you have to study screenwriting, which I've been doing a great deal of, reading screenplays, uh, getting, you know, educating oneself in those areas. Uh, and in doing so, perhaps learning what the difficulties are, what, how, you know, where you can go wrong in this. And at a given point, I'm then going to have to create the time in my life where I'll say, okay, now I'm going to do it. And um, I've not yet completed this project, so I may never complete it. But the fact is that a year ago, this was just a capacity. Now it's becoming a reality. Um, When you raised that question, it also made me think of a very dear friend of mine who's now retired. Uh, He's Swiss. He lives in Switzerland. Uh, He's about 80 years old. Um, He was a, a professor of radiology at a university hospital in Switzerland. Very successful career. And, but when he was training as an intern in radiology, um, he was in New York in the early 1950s, 1951-52. And by chance, uh, he stumbled across um, lectures on, on Buddhism, which were given by D.T. Suzuki in Columbia University, which are now sort of... You know, one of the key moments in the transmission of Buddhism to the West. And, um, you know, John Cage was there. And all this. It was a very, very hot time. And Suzuki took a great liking to my friend 
and encouraged him to become a train as a Zen priest in Japan in the early 50s. And my friend said, he thought about it, he really wanted to do it. But he said, no, I can't do that. I, I, have, to, I have to become a radiologist. And he became a very successful radiologist, immensely success, successful, very honoured, you know, very fine career. Uh, but now, when he looks back on his life, he says, you know, I had the chance to do that and I didn't do it. And he regrets that now. He took the safe route. He took the route of a, a good conventional Swiss person would take. You know, nice secure career in radiology. But there's a part of himself, a capacity that was opened up in those times that he never really fulfilled. And he, and, and he now somehow looks back on his life and and that's an area in which he feels, you know, he, he didn't really respond to something very deep within him. And he regrets that. So, yeah, we have capacities. I don't think capacities are themselves developed. It's more the fact that we have to, at a given point in our life, um, risk following those intuitions, those feelings, of what we could be, what we could do, what we could become, and sometimes casting all hesitation to the wind, doing something which may be judged to be foolhardy, irresponsible, in more or less what my family said to me when I became a monk. You know, they were horrified, right? <laughs> but now, of course, now that I can register uh, achievements on their scales of success, you know, publishing books, being on the radio, traveling around the world, then of course Buddhism is now fine. But, <laughs> but there was an enormous impediment from their side, not that I sought their approval, um, to pursue this, this capacity in my life. But we also have to be realistic. I mean, I would like to win Wimbledon. <laughs> but I'm, I think I'm sensible enough to realize that I don't stand a you know, dog's chance in hell. So I'm not going to try and realize that capacity. Maybe I don't have that capacity. I certainly don't now. There's no way I could beat Andy Roddick or whoever. But, um, but I think that's part of the practice in a way, you know, this, this practice is when you sit in meditation and when you open yourself up like this, you also begin to open up to an awareness of what it is that you intuitively and most deeply feel um, your life could be or what it could become or what you might do and uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to become a monk or a nun but it might mean that you might choose to you know, be a poet or an artist or, or whatever it is I don't think one should privilege certain things over others but to realise a capacity requires often taking a rather scary leap in the dark We need the microphone. Okay. I intuitively feel that uh, we are endowed with inborn capacity for awakeness mm -hmm. as well as uh, capacity for not seeking for safety and security. Yeah. And you seem to say we also I wonder you saying it's uh, we are also uh, uh, the born with a 
capacity to make a decision, ability to making a risky decision uh -huh. to which way we want to go. Is that the right way to look at it? Um, yes, I, we have a, I think we all have a capacity to you know, take difficult decisions, but I don't think any of us has the capacity to know whether that's the right decision or the wrong decision. That's the problem. We would love to know before we make these leaps in the dark exactly what's going to happen after we've made that choice. Uh, but we can never know that, I don't think. Okay, we might throw the I Ching or have a horoscope reading or do anything to kind of try to give us the security that this decision will be the good one. My sense is that part of the very nature of uh, that kind of decision-making is um, being willing to engage in a risk and not know the outcome. Um, a lot of people are drawn to meditation because they, they come at it at a point of crisis in their lives or a crossroads and they think, that well, if I could look deep and hard enough inside my mind, then I would know at some point exactly what it is I should do. I'll be able to resolve this, this logjam, this vacillation, this uncertainty, and some little inner voice will say, you should do X. There may be, there are stories of people to whom that happens. Like Mother Teresa, for apparently was sitting on a train in Yugoslavia somewhere and then she just had this flash, which she interpreted as divine, to go and help the poor. So she did it. Uh, and that, those, I think, are, 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 are very moving stories uh, and, and very wonderful, but I think they're probably the exceptions that prove the rule, namely that we do not probably have sufficient certainty in any choice we make as to the outcome of it. And we are, as it were, just challenged to act rather than to not act. A lot of people I know who use meditation to try to make decisions like that very often find that instead of getting clearer about what they want to do, they find that their indecision is just magnified. <laughs> it's like putting a magnifying glass onto their own uncertainty and you just feel more paralysed. You realise how profoundly undecided you are. <laughs> but at a given point, I think it's far better to act and then subsequently say, actually, that was a mistake, than to not act at all and just remain, as it were, confined within one's own uncertainty. Uh, yes, this lady and then this lady and then this gentleman. Well, I was a little confused by uh, two different metaphors um, for the Mara nature. Um, to me, when you use words like barren, you know, first of all, it tends to be very negative, mm -hmm. but they also speak to an inability in the individual themselves mm -hmm. to be able to do something. While as the image of the demons outside yeah. is an external image that you may have the capacity to deal with or not deal with. Yeah. And I'm curious whether you think of that as more of an external or an internal thing. Well, um, I don't actually... Th well, both. The, um, certainly the language of Mara as somehow attacking one 
or, or Jung's idea of the neuroses as autonomous complexes, is purely um, a kind of figurative language. Of course, these things are internal. They're part of oneself. But they're somehow not integrated into the structure of your consciousness. In other words, they, appear, they feel as though they break in. And the, part of the, the pro process of, um, of the cultivation of awareness or consciousness or mindfulness is actually to extend the field of one's awareness so that um, we are more and more um, uh, in, in including and embracing all aspects of ourselves. I think there's a part of ourself, a part of uh, our psychology very often, uh, to disidentify with certain feelings and emotions that we can't accept within ourselves. Um, and, and we try to sort of block them out. We try to repress them and so on. And so, as Freud and others have shown, they almost invariably come back in, um, in another form. I found someone cited to me a passage from the um, Gospel of St. Matthew the other day. Um, and I can't quote it verbatim, and I don't have the text to hand. Does anyone have a Bible? <laughs> Maybe not. But there's a beautiful passage where Christ says something to the effect that, you know, if you, if you get rid of one demon from your, one unclean spirit, he says, from your house, then the unclean spirit will wander around the earth in seeking nourishment. Not finding it, he will then return to your house with seven other unclean spirits. <laughs> And uh, I like that idea because it again suggests that Mara is not overcome by just sort of casting him out, but actually by learning to say, this is my nature, that this is the stuff of my existence, that, that fear and, 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 and aggression and, 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 all, and all these things are, are not different from what I am. They are uh, capacities likewise. They perhaps originate from one's from our evolutionary past. But they're very much um, integral to one's uh, being. So, uh, the thing with Mara, uh, whether it's in Buddhist or as I just cited that passage from the Gospels, um, there seems to be, in the utilizing of figurative language, of metaphorical language, like thinking of Mara as some sort of personified being who interacts with Buddha, the, if you take that literally, then I think you actually create a big problem. But if you take it as a mythic language, then you can learn to va value how that sort of, um, those sort of images communicate a richness and a complexity of our experience that analytical discourse fails to catch. So, I found a great deal of a great richness in these uh, dialogues between the Buddha and Mara, um, which I haven't found in these highly precise Abhidharmic, this is a form of Buddhist philosophy, um, Buddhist scholars, again monks, tended to um, unpack Mara and reduce him to psychological functions on one level, but in any case, to, to somehow break him up in a way that would then by be more intellectually intelligible. So you get a doctrine of Mara, you get the doctrine of the four or sometimes the five Maras, which is conceptually very useful. But it lacks, that sort of language 
however conceptually precise it might be, fails to capture the tricksterish, quixotic voice that you hear in the dialogues that somehow speaks to us in a more total way. And in a way that we can't necessarily reduce to theory, but a way that we can hear and perhaps relate to with the whole of ourselves. It's, you know, it's the same with, a, you know, when you see a very powerful play or, or, or read a very moving novel, um, what is communicated is often some very deep truths about your own experience, but there's no way you can, ju- you can uh, repeat, you can express the truths of that novel or that play in an abstract way. There's something about the literature itself or the, the form of theatre itself that has, is a medium of expression that has its own peculiar way of communicating something that mere theorising cannot. So Buddhism, I think, sort of oscillates between these two sides. Um, and I think we just have to learn to differentiate between when a, an expression is being used metaphorically and when it's perhaps being used more literally. Now, I think you can see Mara as um, an external, um, uh, you know, a force from outside. Um, I mean, a very simple example would be um, we could not be, if we lived in, in, in Iran, we couldn't be doing this. We couldn't be having this discussion. We couldn't meet in a group like this. Uh, we wouldn't have access to Buddhist texts. In other words, our ability to pursue this interest would actually be curtailed by the uh, religious law that operates in that particular Islamic country or under Soviet communism. It doesn't, it doesn't, I'm not trying to say anything against Islam. But the point is there can be forms of society, forms of politics, um, perhaps also forms of sheer poverty. I mean, in an African village also, the sheer pressures to simply survive would preclude um, our being able to talk about Buddha nature. It, wouldn't, it just wouldn't have a role in that society. So, so Mara, we can also extend to anything that somehow uh, stands in our way of realising what we value, Uh, what we consider to be good, um, how we may evolve and develop as individuals. Um, And that can come, you know, from external forces um, as well as it can from internal forces. Um, But I think we need... The the important point is to to recognise metaphor when it's being used metaphorically and not to literalise it. Intimidating. <laughs> huh? I had a question just about perception, shifting yes. perception. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about um, sort of the structure of the organism, like changing maybe the structure of the organism to allow a shift possibly in perception, mm-hmm. if I understood you correctly. Something along Something those lines. Something along those lines, yes. Is, I mean, is that, is, um, what allows for a shift in perception? What, what can one do to... <clears throat> what can one do to shift? Well... Um, well, the example I gave of the fellow who's in the office and not doing his job well, in order to shift the perception, all we needed was a brief bit of information. And that's often the case. Um, we just have to learn something, be told something, and suddenly we look at it in a totally different way. And it's kind of, it's kind of surprising that. Because you know, when, we, um, 
you know, we so, what we seem to do so readily is that we very quickly form an opinion about a situation or a person, for example. We meet someone we don't know. And there may be something about that person that reminds us of someone else we didn't like. Or You know how it is. You, you meet someone and you immediately go, ah, don't quite not feel comfortable with this person. And what we do then is immediately kind of go, okay, that's them. We've now defined them on the basis of an extremely limited encounter as being a particular way. Now, we might do this, I mean, this is what happens in racism, for example, or, or in any kind of sort of gender or, or, or religious stereotyping. We so easily, and so, this is Mara, very much at work, how without consciously wanting to think a particular way about something, we find ourselves locked into a perception of, let's say, you know, nowadays I think Muslims have, it, have a hard time because as soon as you're identified as a Muslim, the person will go, oh, right, people who fly planes into skyscrapers. It, 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 it's, it's a terrible thing. And yet it's such an endemic function of our mind. But all it is is perception. It's the way... Perception is just a way of talking about how we, um, how we ascribe meaning to our experience. In other words, what we see um, is organized and rendered meaningful by a highly complex uh, cognitive operations that are rooted in the brain, in our education, in our culture. When I look at that word up there, for example, amata datu, um, it, 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 you know, it looks as though the word actually is jumping out from the wall, amata datu. If I were a Chinese native speaker and never learnt the Roman alphabet, that, that would be just a bunch of squiggles on the wall. In other words, every situation we come into, we immediately um, uh, 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 identify it, recognise it, and organise it, configure it in terms of our perceptual habits, which are likewise informed by our um, religious, our cultural, our social conditioning and upbringing and so on and thereby the world appears to us as having as already saturated with meanings but those meanings are not given in the world they're given by us and therefore what Buddhist practice could perhaps be thought of is learning to uh, give to the world another meaning the meanings that in a way, instinctively come at us from the world is that the world is more or less fixed. Things are more or less the same all the time. If we identify a person as of a particular religious or ethnic identity that we have an aversion towards, they're stuck in that. And thereby the world somehow seems to us to be composed of fixed, discrete, more or less constant units and things. Now this is something that goes very deep. And Buddhist practice, and perhaps all spiritual practice at one level, is, 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 it begins to attract us when we begin to think, well, do we have to see the world this way? Particularly when we have experiences that show suddenly that the world is not actually that way. For example, when uh, someone very close to us suddenly dies in a motor car accident or something like that. Uh, why we, we, I think we're shocked about that, or we, we find that very difficult to process or handle, a sudden death of a friend, for example, because 
that it, it completely undermines our assumption, our deep-seated perceptual assumption of the world being more or less fixed in place. Suddenly, a crucial element of it is just taken out. And it's very interesting, when a person like that dies, how, you know, you wake up the next morning and you, you're immediately thinking about that person as though they were still alive. You can't quite... You, you know, there's this whole psychological, you know, psychotherapeutic process now to help us do that. But what it shows is the extent to which our perceptual conditioning defines our world in a way that makes it very real for us. The Buddhist, well, one of the key things the Buddha taught was that um, the origin of a great deal of our suffering emerges because we misperceive things. So, I mean, the classic formulation is that we take the impermanent to be permanent, the suffering to be happiness, and the selfless to be self. Vipassana meditation is a systematic attempt to um, inverse that process. So, we systematically pay attention to the impermanence of things, the unreliability of things, the selflessness of things. Now, what that, and the reason you need to do that over time, rather than just believing it, which is easy, is because you are working with deeply embedded perceptual habits. And so to change perception at that level requires, I feel, the sorts of disciplines that one works on in meditation practice, or particularly, say, on a retreat. But really, it's a long-term commitment to a certain way of seeing things. And, again, the effects are not necessarily immediately forthcoming in that process. You may have to work quite hard for a long time. Um, my own sense, I mean, I've been working with this stuff now for maybe 30-odd years. I think it has had a, a, quite a considerable effect. I, I've, I'm so saturated with the idea of impermanence, for example, and all of these key Buddhist ideas, that I think they're actually now more and more and more becoming just part of my perceptual apparatus, more so certainly than they would have been in the past. And I find that kind of weirdly liberating, in a way. But it does take effort, it does take commitment, it does take time, and Mara, which is a way of talking about the psychophysical organism as given, is resisting this all the time. The Mara nature is one that, that doesn't want the world to be broken down from its apparently fixed, manageable, convenient things and objects. So, we're, I mean, the Buddha said at one point, that he says, there's nothing, there is no power in the world equal to the power of Mara. That Mara is, uh, is, is the most powerful force that is that one works against. And I, I think, that, again, I would argue that the reason for that is because these, the, 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 the Mara habits are actually deeply embedded in the structure of our neurobiology. That's my, my, my sense on that one. If this gentleman had a question, then we'll move around here. Yeah. I think you already answered my question kind of two questions back, but I'll proceed anyway. Um, so the other night at Black Oak, I was asking you that issue of Buddha, Mara, kind of the dichotomy, and is the, is the, you know, the power in the Mara? You know, remember that question? Um, 
So today you're talking about capacity and Buddha nature, and it led me in a similar direction of thinking about identity. And this also relates to kind of Eastern models and Western models. So uh, thinking this week about Marlon Brando. And, you know, in one way, I'm thinking if he was in the Zen Hall, I would go, oh, what an arrogant guy he is, you know. But, and maybe I would judge him for his ego. That could be some kind of false Eastern way to look at it. But I'm not, you know, I'm, I was looking at Marlon Brando and the qualities he had of rebelliousness and this and that. And now I'm looking at the Buddha statue and kind of right now going, well, you know what? I think right now I'd like to be Marlon Brando. So it's in, in my question is the fear of a kind of Asian normalizing or leveling that we all, our, we would all become this same kind of Buddha thing. And, uh, you know, so wonder if you have any comments on identity and, you know, Marlon Brando. And my one question that you could answer is where again were those Mara dialogues? What text? Oh, uh, okay. Well, let's do, okay, the easy question is the last one. They're, they're in, um, well, there's the, the dialogues with Mara occur right through the Pali Canon. Um, but there is a very, there's one section in the Sangyutta Nikaya which is translated in English as The Connected Discourses of the Buddha in two volumes by Wisdom Publications in Somerville in um, Massachusetts. Um, Volume 1, about pages 100 to 200, there is a section called the Mara Sangyutta. In other words, The Connected Discourses with Mara. And there are about 30 or 40 episodes connected together. And um, that's a major source. But... There are many others, probably an equivalent number of other passages elsewhere in the canon. But you can find that out if you just look up the index and look for Mara. The, um, <coughs> the other question there about identity. Um, remember that the, the, in the early Buddhist tradition, there was a refusal to depict the Buddha in a human form. And I think that probably does have to do with a certain sense of identity. In other words, it's so easy once you have something like this to think, oh, the Buddha's like that. And all of the associations, both the skills of the different artisans and craftspeople and the iconographic tradition that then emerges around that, uh, allow us to think of Buddha in a kind of uh, anthropomorphic way as being a particular kind of person, as it were. And I think that's useful, but I think it's also, in a way, perhaps equally problematic. I'm particularly keen on the early aniconic tradition of Buddhist art, precisely because it's, it, it, it allows us to think of our identity as an open possibility, rather than anything, that, a fixed state at which we might arrive. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't an iconography before the Buddha image was developed um, there was there's a pre-iconic Buddhist art this went on for about 500 years no Buddha images no Buddha statues but the Buddha was represented by an empty throne or footprints or a tree the Bodhi tree um, in other words as an empty space as a space that had gone on that a, that a person who had left a trace but was no longer there it was actually under the influence of the Greek communities in India uh, that the Buddha image first arose when the Greeks were cut off from their sources of culture in, 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 in Athens and Greece. 
they then sort of, they had no choice really but to become part of the indigenous Indian culture. They converted to Buddhism as a rule, uh, largely because I think they had no option to joining the caste system. It's not something you sign up for. <laughs> and uh, to represent the Buddha, they then um, envisaged him in the form of the god Apollo. If you go to the Asian Art Museum here in San Francisco, you can see some early Gandharan Buddhist imagery in which you see these Buddha images that look like Greek gods. It's quite amazing. But of course what has happened is that you know, this is a long way from a Greek god. This has evolved and changed. And um, so I have an ambivalent relationship to around, around icons. Um, I would rather like a return to that pre-iconic imagery. I think it's very powerful, very powerful. And it gets us out of this problem of ascribing and fixing identities to such images. But again, I think probably if we didn't have any Buddha images, we'd still have you know, people like the Dalai Lama and others who again would somehow be in a Buddhist identity. <coughs> we can never get around that entirely. Actually, if you remember, in some, in some Asian Buddhist traditions, in Sri Lanka, I think, maybe in Burma, when the monks give Dharma talks, they cover their face with a fan. So there's no, it's a sort of impersonal thing. Um, but I think if I did that here, you probably wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't go for it much. But it's probably, again, it's an attempt to somehow depersonalize, de-identify with the figure of a teacher or a monk or whatever. And um, the, I mean, Marlon Brando, of course, is a kind of iconic figure in, 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 in 20th century culture. His, his, his face, the roles he's played, you know, we identify with that. We're, we're drawn to that. We empathize with it. We somehow see that as a kind of role model. And I think all cultures have to have role models, probably. But at the same time, I think a, a religious tradition can also, um, you know, maintain a certain wariness and caution about identifying too readily and too uncritically with such figures. Yes. Oh, you were first. Okay. Microphone. Well, last night I was watching um, flamenco dancers on television. I don't uh -huh. know if anyone caught that show, but um, and I noticed it's sort of related to the Marlon Brando thing because <laughs> I noticed that at one point the fat singer. Okay, the singers are tend to be not. They're not. They're the dancers. They're the singers. They're the guitar players. And the singers are the clappers too, and. So the singers are very erotic, you know. They're not dancers, and the, dan and the everything, the, the whole nature of flamenco dancing, the gypsy mm. culture is very erotic. And I notice that everybody participates, everybody's in, involved in it, and mm -hmm. and you're 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 watching everybody. You're not just watching the dancers. And at one point, the heavy set woman. I'm not saying fat is bad, but it's just in, in, in juxtaposition to the thin, beautiful, exotic dancer, comes on the stage and starts clapping and dancing with this gorgeous, you know, woman. And it's extremely sensual and beautiful. And everybody, is, the whole audience is, is involved. In, and it, it's, it made me feel, and I, I was writing at the, that time and just kind of, 
seeing that everything is so interconnected in this mm-hmm. in this cultural kind of sharing of everybody together doing this thing and and i and i find that you know you know we're all sitting here and you know we're all kind of doing this this one thing and and relating to the Marlon Brando thing you know it, the reason i relate to Marlon Brando and relate to rebellious figures and relate to the gypsy music is because specifically because it is not a static yeah thing to mm-hmm. have it is sort of the mara the the excitement of mara you know and at one point there was this guy dancing and he was completely showing off and they were encouraging him to show off it was the opposite of the fan no fan mm-hmm. it's like i am going to be as erotic and as mm-hmm. amazing as possible and everybody's going to look at me and it made me excited yeah. you know to i was curious what you're talking about <laughs> Well, I would be very careful. Uh, <laughs> it's, a good, it's a good point. The, you see, I think Buddhist tradition, probably like all traditions, has, it's not reducible to a kind of stasis, a kind of static. But that does seem to be you know, a kind of very common image that Buddhists are people who sit still and close their eyes and you know, don't do anything particularly erotic. That, that's for sure. Uh, meditation is not a big turn-off in that sense. But um, you also find that Buddhist tradition has generated uh, an extraordinary you know, profusion of art and literature and poetry and so forth and so on, um, which is very, um, very, very playful and uh, very, very dynamic. Um, and I remember again, and again, I, I remember again in, when I was in Korea in the monastery there, uh, our Zen master had a birthday party and all of the kids from the villages and everybody came and everyone was dancing and everything. It was really very, very, very dynamic and rich. Uh, so I think really the... Um, I think it's a little simplistic to, you know, to sort of split... To, you know, to think of this in purely black and white terms. But the... Um, I mean, I get frustrated with Buddhism sometimes as being a bit stuffy, as a bit sort of static, as a bit kind of unworldly, as a bit... You know, the monks are not allowed to participate in dance or music or anything like that and so you get the sense that that stuff's somehow somehow bad but you also get periods in Buddhist uh, history where um, that kind of you know moralistic maybe rather rigid strict way of doing things becomes unsustainable and and it it generates a kind of a backlash, it generates a a rebellion and and I think in early Zen is a very good example of that the, the early Zen monks deliberately behaved in a way that somehow was making fun almost or, or, or being very uh, disrespectful of that rather strict, severe, ascetic morality of the monasteries. And in India, this I think it was even more pronounced in the movements of the tantric tradition that emerged around the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries where a lot of people had, had been monks you know, abandoned the monastic life, returned to the lay life, uh, did kind of outrageous things, and wrote about their Buddhist understandings in often very explicitly erotic ways. Um, but of course what happens is that that tends, as, the, as that teaching becomes somehow you know, institutionalized, then it kind of closes down again. 
But what I find interesting with the Buddha-Mara metaphor is that Buddha does, I think, if Mara is death, I think of Mara really as restriction and closure and um, a kind of paralysis. And I think of Buddha as really what a life that, is, that, 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 that unfolds when those inhibitions and paralyses fall away. Now that doesn't mean that one just somehow gives free reign to every impulse and desire and fantasy that comes. That's clearly not what's meant. But nonetheless, it is an affirmation, I feel, of uh, the spiritual practice being one that leads you into a fuller and richer engagement with your creative potential and your life. And I would very much, and the, for example, this movie I'm making, that's something, or this screenplay I'm writing, uh, is, is to me a very exciting process that uh, leads me to work with uh, imagery, with drama, with tragedy, with lots of action. And, and to me that, in a way, speaks the truth of the Buddhist tradition uh, in a way that I think sometimes gets suffocated by an excess of doctrine and dogma. Um, and yet, of course, there are extremes either way. I mean, the Buddhist idea is always somehow to hold a balance between between all polarities, really. And, of course, at times when we feel trapped, then we, we yearn for a kind of outburst of release and of dancing and all of that stuff. But, on the other hand, very many people, I think, come to meditation precisely because they've they've experienced an excess of the other too, you see. They need stillness, calm, focus, clarity. You know, you know, the hippies in the 60s, you see, a lot of them were really into all that stuff. And yet many of them, then, many of my generation, you see, that came out of the sort of Dionysian excess of the 60s, ended up, um, you know, in Buddhist monasteries. And likewise, perhaps, as we move out of that, we move back into another engagement with the world. I, I, I think it's, I see it very much as a rhythm, rather than, I think, the, rather than thinking, well, it should be like this or it should be like that. And again, if you look at the history of Buddhist cultures, you see an enormous diversity and richness and change and flow and so on. Periods of exuberance, periods of introversion. Uh, and so it's, the, it's that whole patterning. It's the flamenco dancing, but also the absolutely solitary, still, monastic, contemplative. They're both necessary parts of the grand drama of life. Thank you. Uh, you have a question? Yes, and then this lady here. I wonder if you've encountered the uh, dialogue that's been taking place in Japan and over the last few years uh, or debate over whether Buddha nature is Buddhist. Oh, I've heard of this. Um, I've not been following it. Can you, could you sum up some of the points there? It's quite interesting. There's a couple of Japanese, rather provocative Japanese scholars who've written something about this, right? Um, Ishii Shudo has challenged the philosophy of uh, Nishida Kitaro. My God. Um, <laughs> and several hundred years of Mahayana tradition, uh -huh. of course. Uh, one way to frame the issue uh, that might go to the duality of Buddha nature versus Mara nature uh -huh. uh, would be to look at whether or not 
um, our in inherent ability for enlightenment uh, glosses over some of uh, some of the behaviors that have uh, taken place in the Buddhist context. I think everyone's school has encountered some issue, <laughs> and uh, it's not particular to the Japanese school, the Soto school that it came out of. Although, um, for example, uh, I think um, uh, the Soto school, for example, has apologized for it, the role that it played in the war. In the war. Mm. Um, maybe I'll shift it just a little bit. Okay. I think of you a certain way, as a part of a, um, a number of, of writers and, and speakers, um, yourself, Brian Victoria, mm-hmm. um, Ishishiro, um, David Brazier, mm-hmm. what you have in common is you've all been labeled heretics. And you have something, uh, you've challenged a certain static position about, uh, about Buddhism. How does it feel to be a heretic? <laughs> um, well, first of all, let's think what heretic actually means at root. Her- heretic comes from the Greek heresias, I think, which means to make a choice. <laughs> a heretic is a person, in other words, who chooses to think otherwise than the orthodoxy. So, for me, I mean, I, I, heresy is again one of these horribly loaded words that it's very difficult to somehow celebrate being a heretic without that being a terribly kind of uh, self-indulgent kind of thing. Um, but what does it feel like to be taken to task? Well, I've often been uh, condemned as someone who's no longer a Buddhist, you see. Uh, I can't be a Buddhist because I don't believe in A, B, C, D or E. Um, and that um, is both, um, you know, that is a very challenging thing to be said because I do think of myself as a Buddhist. I feel myself very much rooted in a Buddhist tradition that I've been, admittedly, I was not born a Buddhist, but nonetheless, my whole adult life has been within a Buddhist framework. I've trained as a monk and a priest and so on. The, um, so when someone says, I, you're, I'm not a Buddhist, um, you know, I, I feel that, um, um, well, it forces me to then ask the question, well, if I am a Buddhist, what does that mean for me? And I guess all of my writing is a way of trying to articulate that. Um, I certainly don't like being, um, uh, you know, I don't think anybody likes being condemned. It's not a, it, it, I, 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 I wish that didn't happen. But, on the other hand, it perhaps gives me at times a sense of, of clarity about where my deepest convictions lie and um, a willingness, um, maybe even a sense of, of mission in a sense, to, uh, to communicate that. But you see, as, as, as a heretic, let's say I'm a heretic, you get feedback from both sides. I get far more feedback from people who write to me almost on a, say, a weekly basis, saying, I read your book, X, Um, this was the first book on Buddhism that ever made any sense to me, Um, 
uh, I've been thinking these things all along. Or some people will say, I've been in, you know, in my Buddhist group belonging to Lama X or Roshi Y. Uh, we were looking at your book and so many of us felt that this is actually what we felt we think all along but we're not not allowed to say. So I'm aware of the fact that in, in, in broaching these ideas, in raising these questions, in articulating these doubts, I'm actually speaking on behalf of a much wider community of people who in a sense perhaps do not feel uh, either willing or able to articulate themselves as they really feel. Now that's very affirming, you see. At the same time, I also get flack, although a lot of this flack actually comes in a rather sort of insidious, stabbing in the back kind of fashion on the internet. There's very, what, I, what I feel disappointed by is that, you know, I've made these comments about rebirth and reincarnation in one of my books, but no orthodox Buddhist has published, as it were, uh, uh, or has attempt, attempted to write or persuade uh, a readership um, of the other point of view. I mean, why aren't there books out there somehow, you know, you know pr- demonstrating how central and how important and how true rebirth and karma are? They, they remain silent, you see. And yet, so the attacks are very often, um, you know, uns- often behind the back. And that I don't like. If you go to the bookstore, there's all these refutations of the Da Vinci Code. Uh, there are, I, of the I, what? Of, of the, the Da Vinci Code. Of the Da Vinci Code. Uh, right. There aren't, I, I agree, there aren't a lot of refutations of, uh, of what you've had to say, just rumblings. Uh, count me in as among those who find <laughs> it, um, it, it's, you're among those who make it possible for, uh, for me to be engaged in this. Well, thank, thank you very much. I mean, that, that, that is the sort of thing that makes my work worthwhile to hear that. Thank you. Uh, this lady in pink, and then the fellow behind her. Well, I, have, um, sort of a I think it works if you put the microphone in <laughs> <laughs> um, I have a, a three-part question. Um, okay. The first part, um, which I thought you were saying um, when you were talking about uh, Buddha nature, or Buddha womb, was that the Buddha womb is our physiological being in our, mm-hmm. you know, circumstance here yes. on the planet. Mm-hmm. And it seemed, even though you didn't say it, that it, it only would make sense that the Buddha womb is the Mara womb. It's the same. Yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. and as much as you talked about Mara being something that shuts you down, the implication, it seemed to me, was that they really weren't separate. That's correct, yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So, maybe I just didn't <laughs> hear you say that explicitly. Yeah, well, that's what I meant. The, 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 this organism, I gave the example of the valve. A valve right. can be shut or a valve can be open. There's no difference in the valve in being shut or being open. But, it's well, a different modality of a single thing. Right, but I, I thought the implication was that it's Maybe I'm projecting something. It seemed like the implication was it's much better if it's open. But from what you were saying, it seemed like to function well, it had to open and close. Oh, I see what you mean. Well, the reality is, you see, okay, this does bring us on to, I think, an important point. Um, There could be no Buddha without Mara. 
and not just in a you know in a kind of mythological sense but if there were not restrictions if there were not limitations in our life there would be no possibility of opening up into a more unlimited perspective if there was no uh, if there was no bondage or, or entrapment there would be no possibility of freedom if there was no confusion or chaos or delusion there would be no possibility of enlightenment or awakening you can't have one without the other and our actual moment to moment experience is one in which both of these are necessarily operative the danger is when you hive off Buddha nature as some kind of privileged bit failing to see that what a capacity is always entails um, uh, uh, it always entails being able to somehow work within the hesitations and the limitations that prevent you from working with the capacity. The, the capacity or the potential uh, is always within a restrictive condition. Otherwise, we, you know, we just do it. So in that sense, I'm trying to suggest in this book particularly that Buddha and Mara, enlightenment, delusion, these things are just two parts of the same process. And we have a freedom, we have a capacity to uh, to go one way or the other. And um, if we value such things as love, as wisdom, as freedom, then, from a Buddhist perspective at least, this means seeking to optimize that, mar- that Buddha capacity um, and not to succumb or give in to that closure, that resistance to the realization of such values. But all of that is operating... You see, conceptually, we inevitably make distinctions that are not um, reducible to some actual thing in the world or some uh, state of being. And yet, words inevitably draw lines across this seamless fabric of life. The practice operates within within the realm of life. But life, again, you see, is inseparable from death. If we think of Buddha as life and we think of Mara as death, then just like life and death, you cannot have one without the other. Life is what it is for us because it is is moving inexorably towards its own end. That is what life is. If we were immortal, we wouldn't feel about our lives as we do now. Again, it's probably unconscious largely, But the very value we have of life is precisely because we instinctively and intuitively know that it will end. Mara is the end. Buddha, I would understand to be um, the realization of what life can be at, at its best. These are metaphors. But the process, I think, will always entail both. And in that, 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 that sense, we have to be sort of grateful to Mara, as it were. Um, the other thing that came up for me, um, and this emerges a lot when I'm listening mm-hmm. to people or reading, um, that um, when I was listening to your ideas about uh, Buddha womb, and, mm-hmm. you know, I was very taken by them, or, and they were appealing to mm-hmm. me. And so, in a sense... You know, wouldn't they be the little fish hooks that you're talking about that I cohere around Uh and fix around? But then, okay, so I, 
I enjoy those ideas. They, for me, they, uh, in a way, they are an opening, but that opening is maybe a, a fish well, well, this is the problem. You see, the, the, there is nothing in the world that cannot become a function of Mara. There's a passage of Lin Chi that I quote in here. Um, He says, if you desire Buddha, then you are caught in the grip of the Buddha Mara. He uses that expression. Uh, If I can find it, I can never find things when I want them. Doesn't matter. But that's what Lin, that is a very telling quote. Um, You can, I mean, look at how the notion of, I mean, the, the story of Te Shan, another Zen master, Chinese. Who, became, who started out life as the, as, as the great Buddhist defender of the doctrine of em- emptiness. And anybody who pr- uh, pronounced any teaching that was in contradiction to his understanding of shunyata, that person had to be condemned. In other words, you can turn anything into a form of tyranny. Even the most enlightened thing, the Buddha, the emptiness, freedom, all of these can be used as as ways to oppress others who don't hold your views, for example. So you can take any idea and it will have potential within it both to free you or to bind you. Any doctrine, any teaching, any term, any word is both potentially liberating and potentially uh, entrapping. And that is the nature of the conditioned world. It's the nature of life. Uh, and the thing to the, 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 the practice is very much learning to to work and live with that, rather than trying to hive off those acceptable parts of yourself and demonise the others, or the acceptable parts of our society and demonise the others. The, the Mara power runs through everything. Uh, maybe we're running out of time. Maybe we could just shift back to this fellow here. And then I'd like this to be the last question. And then I'd like to conclude with some silence. Yes. Okay. Uh, since you've been labeled a heretic, uh, I'm curious of your ideas of reincarnation. <laughs> and, uh, and if reincarnation is true, um, as some groups state that one of the greatest things possible is being born a human yeah. and that only in the human life can you realize you know, all of this. So if that's true, how come uh, humans can also uh, give out so much pain and uh-huh. violence and destruction if they're the most, you know, the highest group of people in the universe? Well, let's leave reincarnation out of this. I'm, uh, I'm I'm somewhat agnostic, I'm agnostic about that. Uh, it's not a, a, an issue that I think is really uh, important. Um, in fact, to be quite honest, I would go further than that. I don't believe in reincarnation. <laughs> Rebirth, same thing. I don't believe in that either. I, don't think, I think that's a semantic distinction that you don't find in the classical texts. I think it's very unlikely. You, you can't disprove it, but I think the weight of the weight of what we now know about the way in which human beings and other forms of of sentient life have emerged through the processes of natural selection don't really leave any room for a kind of disembodied consciousness that somehow inhabits the organism and then passes on. I think that's a, a relic of an animistic way of thinking. So, no, I don't believe in any of that stuff. But I do believe in karma, you see. 
I do believe that the actions that we do will have an impact after our death. I think that's self-evident, to be honest. I don't think it's a great revelation. In other words, our responsibility um, uh, is not just for our world now or our, 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 our circles of friendship, our community. Our responsibility is just as much for those who will inhabit this earth after our death. And I don't think you can actually have a truly engaged Buddhism if you, uh, if you persist in holding out the, 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 the opt-out of, okay, if we, mess, if we destroy this planet, we'll get reborn somewhere else. If you think that, then I think you'll never be totally committed to working with what is calling for our attention and care and survival on this world. This world, as far as I know, as far as any of us know, may have been the only world like this that has ever been and that ever will be. And I think it's crucially important in our times that we cultivate a spirituality that is utterly secular, in other words, of this world. And that means that our actions um, uh, need to be considered in terms both individually and collectively of the consequences that they will bear on those who will live after our death, those who will in continue to habit, inhabit this world. Um, now, uh, human beings uh, in the traditional Buddhist theory are considered to be the only forms of life, although sometimes they'll say some of the lower devas can do it, but basically the human being is considered to be a highly uh, precious occasion, short-lived, but one in which there is sufficient leisure, sufficient freedom uh, to be able to see clearly what's going on and not be compelled to live a life of just foraging for food, for example. But it's also a life in which there is significant degree of, of anguish, of suffering, of pain, in which we can begin to, uh, in which we don't lapse into a kind of complacency and in which we begin to ask deeper questions as to what this life could be about. And for that reason, the human rebirth is considered to be a kind of crucial kind of occasion or opportunity in which um, we can rise beyond, we rise above our purely instinctive nature and reach heights of cultural and spiritual insight and understanding. And um, of course though, no Buddhist teacher would be so naive as to think that human beings are not capable of uh, extraordinary acts of violence, destruction, evil and so on. I mean this is self-evident. But it's the freedom of the human being, in a way, that allows those possibilities, you see. Uh, we can construct worlds like Stalin and Hitler constructed, or we can try to create a pure land on earth. We have the freedom, we have the possibility, the capacity to do either. And uh, that, I think, therein lies, I think, the, what is peculiar about humanity is the fact of our self-referential awareness and consciousness that is able to somehow not be totally tied to sheer physical survival, but to inhabit a history, to inhabit a potential future, to participate in worlds of meaning and culture. All of that gives us this curious capacity to, uh, to create a world, to create 
a kind of being of ourselves that is not given purely by our biological reality.